0: Good morning. Such a privilege to be here with you all this morning. Um, I know it's a gorgeous day out and uh, the temptation to be on the common, even for me, was um, quite high this morning. So thank you for coming to join us. Um, And I am really excited about Titus chapter 2. I have never been this excited about Titus chapter 2 before. And I hope that after this morning, you too will be all about Titus chapter 2. So let's take a moment to open in prayer. And we'll get going. Father God, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you that it is alive, and that it is real, and that it is looking to encourage and transform us, Father. And we thank you for this opportunity. Just sitting in this space together now for the next fifteen minutes, we pray that your word would encourage, it would challenge it would um, break chains maybe in our lives that are holding us back from doing what it is you're calling us to. Uh, But we just pray for you to reign and for your message to come across in each of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's, uh, there are uh, uh, service sheets at the end of everybody's pews. Thank you, that's perfect. Uh, With the passage on, so we're going to read through that together and then dive right in. So, Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every day, Every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Last week, Jago started our three-week series on Titus. Uh, If you were here, we had a look together at Titus chapter 1. Um, which again, entitled Transforming the Church, which starts with godly leaders who stand up for the truth, which then leads to godly living. And today we're going to change to Titus chapter 2, um, which we're calling Transforming Lives. And we're going to explore together how it is that a knowledge of the truth can lead to a transformed life, a life of godliness. As Jacob pointed out, this book was addressed to Titus, who was given charge of the people in the church in Crete. Um, So I was thinking a little bit about Crete this week um, and did some Googling, and this is what um, one of the travel columns said about Crete. Is it up there? Thanks, Jess. That's great. Crete is a gift from the gods Greek islands of legends and myths is a heavenly place for a holiday. Most of you know Michael John, and you've seen him um, speaking up here with much passion. Um, Michael John um, is thinking seriously about Titus. Michael John is thinking seriously about the values of lives at HTC. And he has taken the values of authenticity, of being biblical, and of being fun-loving. And this week, he's gone on holiday to Crete. Um, Hopefully, he'll report back some of his research I personally don't know what life in modern day Crete is like, um, but in the days of the early church, in these times, the Cretans were were known to be an incredibly amoral people group. They became known for their drunkenness, for their gluttony, and for promiscuity. The cartoon, uh, yep, this cartoon on the end here is of what Paul, in his experience of the Cretans, um, found their culture to represent. During the period of the Cretan church, which was still very much in its infancy, it was in danger of becoming a gospel-plus community by assimilating some of the Cretan cultural norms. The danger that Paul was very aware of was that lives that conform to the culture of the day can bring the gospel into disrepute and could also destroy the community. Verse 1 starts off with, you however, or but as for you, which is quite a peculiar way to start a chapter. But if we look at Titus 1, Paul had been speaking against the false teachers of that time who were advocating a gospel plus incorporating the cultural norm. But Paul was instructing Titus to be different, not to just stop at don't do false teachings, but rather replace these false teachings with a whole truth, the solid truth instead, teachings that if we literally translate this are, are, are healthy, healthy teachings, teachings that are without defect. Sound teaching promotes spiritual health. Sound teaching promotes spiritual health in both ourselves and in those around us. I grew up in a South African Baptist church um, where we were challenged continually to memorize scripture. And now as an adult, when I face difficulties, those truths are often what anchor me this morning, um, as we prepared for the challenge show, I chose the song Pure and Holy for the girls to dance to because it is a prayer that I have for the young girls in our community that as they commit the words of the song and the corresponding actions to their memory, that later in future, in future years, those truths will anchor them in the heat of the moment in temptation and in struggles that will inevitably arise. Verse 2 to 11 remind us that these teachings of the church are relatable to various groups in the church, and the charge is given to older Christians to teach and to be an example to the younger believers. People of every age and every position in society have a role to play. In this way, Paul is highlighting the inclusivity of God's love and of his community, Verse 2, the older men are challenged to live a holistic life of Christian dignity and dynamic faith. Self-control was a huge battle for this community, clearly. It's mentioned here, then again in verse 5, and then again in verse 6 when he's speaking to the younger men and the younger women, and then later again at the end. It reminds us that we need to be able to master our wills, our tongues, our passions, so as not to bring distribute to the name of Christ. Then in verse 3, he speaks to the older women, and they're instructed to give evidence in their outward lives of their inner spiritual commitments. It was commonplace in Crete for women to drink excessively when they went to dinners, when they went to banquets, and as a result, they would lose self-control of both their tongues, hence the reference to slanderers, and their bodies, where infidelity was really very commonplace. The standard that Paul is setting and that he is imploring the older women to be modeling is one of purity. The challenge to these women is to show themselves as, as women who have emerged from the Cretan way of life because of the grace that they'd experienced by putting their faith in Jesus. And once they had disentangled themselves from the impure ways and activities of their culture, Paul goes on to then entrust them with the incredibly significant responsibility to teach what is good, which more accurately translates as to call people back to their senses, equivalent to a slap in the face. We all know that in our own lives and in our own journeys, we've had moments when what we've needed is a very honest calling back to our senses. So this was a key responsibility. And this passage, as I've read through it, I've kind of been sitting in the middle here. I wasn't sure. Well, when I, when I looked at it initially, I was sure I was a younger woman. But now as I read it, I realize that at some moments I'm an older woman and at some moments I'm a younger woman. I've had some incredible older women in my life who've been phenomenal at honoring God and a life that is a representative of the gospel as they serve others. But now, as I look around me, I see increasingly that there are younger women around me. And the question for myself is, do I motivate these younger women in both my words and my actions to live a way that is honoring of God? In verse four and five, Paul's encouragement to the younger woman is whatever work she finds herself committed to do, that she does it with purpose and with kindness to both those inside of her home and those she conducts business with outside, and in all of these things to ultimately make sure that the gospel is not brought into disrepute. He's not dictating what a woman's work should be. He's not saying, what he is saying is that whatever we do with our days, whether it's working in a high-profile city job, or whether it's raising children, or as Lucy said, serving in the mission field, that this is done graciously and it's remaining true to the gospel, not gospel plus or even gospel minus the bits that aren't really attractive. The Cretan trend was for a woman to be idle and to go from house to house. And we all know that there is increasing likelihood of falling into sin and into temptation when we are idle. Then in verse six to eight, Paul minces no words in saying that the fundamental characteristic of younger men's outward conduct is to be self-controlled in everything. Titus then is exhorted to be a good example of this, to be above reproach, as he is an ambassador of Christ and a champion of the church. Both his words and his deeds must be full of integrity. The message um, translates this verse as, show them this by doing it yourself. And One of the problems with the false teachers of those times is that they would claim to know God with their lips, but their actions would deny him. Speaking impulsively, I know, starts arguments. But a person who does careful Bible study and who is thoughtful and who listens before he or she speaks is much more likely to display integrity and to be a better representative of Christ. Being quick witted isn't necessarily as close to godliness as our culture sometimes implies. The use of the word slave in verse 9 is more helpfully and accurately translated as bond servant, someone who serves in the home or serves on the land. Paul is not for one minute promoting or condoning slavery, but what he is saying is that whatever station we find ourselves serving in, for our work to be pleasing, to be done in a satisfactory, acceptable fashion that meets that meets our superiors' expectations. My parents relocated from England to Johannesburg in South Africa in the late 70s, which was at the height of the apartheid unrest. My mum befriended a neighbour's maid by the name of Hilda. And as they were often both at home housekeeping all day, they would sit and have lunch together. Then when, as a family, we, we, we came over to the UK for Christmas one year, Our house was broken into. Everything was stolen, even the food in the pantry. During the offender's getaway, they shot and killed one of the neighbors who confronted them. When we got back, we found out that the police had arrested Hilda and her accomplices, and they were jailed for the break-in and for the murder. This was devastating for us, and my mum went from her delight in befriending and sharing life with what she thought was a trusted friend to losing all desire to make any friends with the local community in which she had placed herself. Many years later, a young South African woman turned up at our door in a different house in a different part of South Africa. It was pouring with rain and she had a sick baby boy in her arms, and she had nowhere to stay. She said that she was sleeping in a shop doorway, and she desperately needed a job and a place to stay. My mum took them in so that the baby could get the medical attention that he needed, but she made it clear that she did not want the lady, whose name was Lena, to work for her. The son, Daniel, had pneumonia, and by the time he was well enough to leave the house, Lena had endeared herself so much to our family that she stayed for 30 years. This is Lena. Lena was a very committed disciple of Christ. And the example that she personified. is found in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And she was an amazing role model for all of us. She restored my mom's belief in the potential goodness that is in all people. Lena died recently, but the way that her service, her day in and day out faithfulness to point us to a life that honors God and loves others well, that will forever be her legacy. Both her and my mum, women from opposite sides of the political divide, had become my primary older women, inspiring me to live a life that is set apart, that is not conformed to the culture of the day, and in both their words and the work that their hands found to do to honor the word of God. The wording that Paul uses here conveys the message that servants, who are very often at the bottom of society's hierarchy, can, through the splendor of their conduct, have an ability to honor God and increase the attractiveness of the gospel to unbelievers. Isn't that a beautiful image? This is why I thought it was so important for us to invite Lucy Howell up here this morning to pray with as she leaves to serve in Sudan. Her service will likely be in very extreme circumstances. Her hours will be long and exhausting. Her rewards likely not given in this lifetime. But her heart And our commission as her community is that she will live and she will serve in a way that increases the attractiveness of the gospel to those who don't yet have a faith in Jesus. So in this first section of Titus 2, verse 1 to 10, Paul's desire is to ensure that the emerging church understands the importance of Christians' respectability in society. Verse 11 to 14, he shifts gears and he moves from the mundane duties to the sublime doctrine. So we'll read through verse 11 to 14 again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Salvation is God's gift to believers. It's not something we earn by our good works. The effect of this salvation of receiving this grace is a new form of life in which believers are empowered to then go about and do good work. Out of this gift, we then go on to pursue an active, an active life of justice and of mercy. And it's on this premise that those preceding verses are founded and rooted. We've received the grace. Its effect is a grueling, fruit-bearing, training, and transforming as we wait for the ultimate hope of Christ's return. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says the following... If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. We are to live lives that are set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart and focused on things of above while we wait for the blessed hope. When Christ returns or he calls us home, he will perfect in us our salvation. We will become completely who he has designed for us to be, without spot, without blemish, in his likeliness. This is the hope that we wait for. We hope and wait for Christ's personal presence. When we will be with him. Secondly, we wait for redemption from our sinful nature, the end of this ongoing battle with sin and temptation, for it to be ended and made perfect in Christ. And then finally, the restoration of all creation, when the image of God will be fully realized in people, and when the created order will finally be what he intended for it to be. Recently, our family in the half term break went on holiday with some friends. And we got to meet a farmer who had 500 one-day-old turkey chicks in his back garden. Of course, our girls were desperate to meet these chicks. I actually was quite keen to. Um, And here is a photo of Zoe and Rachel, um, who was teaching Zoe how to gently but firmly hold one of these chicks. So when we got back to work the next week, I was chatting with one of my colleagues and telling them how much the girls loved um, getting to see these chicks. And she very helpfully suggested um, that we hatch some chicks of our own at home. Um, And when I asked her, well, that's a great idea. How do do I go about doing this? She said that if I put an egg under a really strong light, intensely for, 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 for a little bit, Um, we would soon have our own chick hatching. And I didn't realize how easy it was to hatch my own chick. Um, At this juncture, another colleague, um, far more knowledgeable in the ways of the chicken world, interjected. um, And she informed us um, that if we wanted to hatch our own chicks, we would need to have fertilized eggs. (sighs) The type that I buy at Sainsbury's, or even the organic waitress version they wouldn't hatch no matter how long I left them under that light. Even if I sat on them for a week, she said, all we would get was hot, smelly, potentially scrambled eggs. Yes, now these are the things of above that we talk about at the staff office. However, this did get me thinking that no matter how hard we try to warm this egg, to incubate it, to replicate the same environment that the mother hen would have created. If that egg wasn't fertilized, there would be no chick to look forward to. And likewise, I think that sometimes as humans, we find ourselves working really, really hard at doing the good stuff and acting in ways that are pure and holy, but without them happening as a response The gift of his grace, to his life altering work in us that Christ completed on that cross. All we will be doing is tantamount to sitting around warming eggs. Similarly, if we have accepted the gift of Christ as our Savior and know his love and his forgiveness and the power of his grace, but we don't live in a way that adorns the gospel, in a way that gives a good repute then our faith is dead, and there will be no new life or hope to be looking forward to. Jesus gave himself on the cross, not only to secure our forgiveness, but also to redeem us from the wickedness of our ways, to say, in effect, there is another way. Walk with me, and I will lead you in it. And as such, to be purifying for himself a people that are his very own, that are set apart, that are eager, that are zealous, that are not reluctant, but are desperate, chomping at the bit for an opportunity to do what is good. These are the lives that are to be pure and holy, to be set apart. That's what the dance that the young girls did this morning was all about. Here they are imploring us as the ones that they're looking up to to be set apart, to be a people whose minds are set on him that, so that everything that is impure will be swept away by the power of his spirit, by the grace that God showed through Jesus so we can stand before him pure and holy. Gandhi has famously said the following, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. This is exactly what was going on in Crete, but sadly their lives were built on unsound truths, unsound beliefs, which in time turned actions, and habits, and eventually destiny into one that is distractive and in opposition to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Instead, I think what Paul would likely encourage us to do is the following. Receive grace that reveals the truth. Teach the truth. It establishes your belief. Your beliefs will purify your thoughts Your pure thoughts lead to holy action. Your holy actions set your life apart. Your life points to him. Your hope is not disappointed. In closing, I wanted to share with you some photos of these paintings that I've come across recently. Most most of them over at Trinity House, one of them in Starbucks. Um, But all of them are of this church, Holy Trinity Clapham. And uh, if you just flick through those slowly, uh, there's five of them. That would be great. Thank you. They're all really really well done. But the very last one, the one, this one, thank you. This one's my favorite. And as I look at it, I'm reminded that Holy Trinity Clapham, the church not of Crete, but the church of Clapham, is in many people's line of sight. For this artist, HTC fills their window frame. And it got me thinking about the fact that we are encouraging, Jago this morning was encouraging all of you to go out into Clapham with these Clapham Sunday pamphlets, inviting people to come into this building that for so many is just something that is in their line of vision. But for each of these five different artists... They have all clearly painted HTC, but from their own unique viewpoint. Whether we like it or not, we are God's people in Clapham. We are set apart. We are walking pamphlets or invitations or tracts of his truth. Do our lives and our actions adorn his gospel? Do they make people want to come into this place? To meet the one that we claim allegiance to, and live in service of, in a continual hope of His return and eternal reign. Whether we like it or not, are those saved by grace? As those saved by grace, we are walking tracts. But what is our track record of lives that are pointing others to Him? Thank you. Can we close in some prayer? Father God, we thank you um, for the lives of those that have gone before us and the courage um, to challenge and to teach and to exhort us. God, mostly this morning, I'm thankful for the cross and, and recognize once again, Lord, that without that gift, all the works that I would be doing would be merely the warming of eggs. And we thank you, though, that because of the power of the cross, you draw us into lives that are to be transformed daily as we sit under you, as we walk with you and with this community, as we look to the hope of Jesus' return, and as we point others to the beauty of who you are. Father God, we pray that you would continue to convict and to challenge us and give us courage to step out and and turn aside from things that... That we know are countercultural or are cultural, but but in addition to the gospel, Lord. We just pray that you help us turn our backs on those. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.